Before I begin, I want to give a warning to listeners that this podcast contains graphic descriptions of violence that may be triggering to some. So do we still do the seventh inning stretch when nobody is there that actually needs to stretch? An MLB executive likely asked another during a discussion about conducting a baseball game without fans. And do we still play a hitter's walk-up music when there isn't anybody in the stands to respond to the hype? Another likely asked as logistics continued to be discussed. And what do we do about foul balls? Do we just leave them where they fall? After all, fans typically act as a stadium's Roomba, an automatic cleaning protocol where people race and wrestle with one another to pick up the free souvenirs. But with that typical solution out of operation, this odd question had to be asked. Now, while such conversations may have taken place just recently, when Major League Baseball announced a tentative proposal to proceed with an abbreviated season of crowdless baseball, all played at a neutral site, they could have just as easily taken place in April 2015, when the Baltimore Orioles hosted the Chicago White Sox at Camden Yards with literally no fans at all. And no, not no fans with quotation marks, like when on July 8, 2002, the South Atlantic League's Charleston River Dogs hosted a nobody night promotion where the team padlocked the gates until the fifth inning so that the official attendance was zero before finally letting thousands of fans in to witness the end of the historic game. No, on April 29, 2015, there literally were zero fans in the stands for the game's entirety in what most believe was the first and only game in Major League Baseball history without any fans whatsoever. There was no cheering, no booing, no heckling, no jeering. And boy, was it eerie. The Orioles starting catcher that day, Caleb Joseph, said, You can prepare for it mentally. But until you literally are in the middle of a baseball game and there's not one person in the stands, it's just so odd. Joseph had unsurprisingly never played under such circumstances and wasn't sure how to proceed. So he tried to go about the day as he normally would, waving toward the empty seats as if they were filled with members of Orioles Nation, and even going to the area normally reserved for autograph seekers and pretending to sign mementos for imaginary fans. But despite the people in the game's best efforts to go about business as usual, it was nothing of the sort. The umpire that day, Jim Lane, was known for loud and dramatic strike-three calls, a signature move that delighted fans. But that day, with nobody in the stands, it just felt odd and out of place. And so Lane made his calls with subtlety and reservation. As many players are apt to do, Orioles first baseman Chris Davis made it a habit that season to toss the ball into the stands after recording the final out of an inning so that a lucky fan had a souvenir for the day. In the top of the first inning that day, as part of trying to maintain his normal routine, Davis flipped the ball into the void where fans would normally be hand-fighting and boxing each other out to recover the souvenir. But that day, all anybody on the field could hear was clank, clank, clank the ball bouncing off the vacant seats. In the bottom of the first inning, Chris Davis added to the strangeness when he had a three-run home run off White Sox pitcher Jeff Samarja, Caleb Joseph later recalled of the moment. When Davis hits a home run at that stadium, people go nuts. And 
for him to hit a home run and just hear it clank off the seats and then just have cheers in the dugout from the teammates, it just was extremely odd. At one point during the telecast, Gary Thorne of MASN announced, listen, just listen. Simon and Garfunkel here. Sounds of silence at Camden Yards for this historic ball game. It was something unlike anything I've ever experienced before, Joseph would later recall. It was odd in, in the fact that sometimes you don't realize how much crowd noise takes from the actual noises on the field, he said. You can hear the crack of the bat, and you can hear the pop of the gloves, but when there's literally nobody in the stands, it's, it's even more magnified. And that part of the game was actually pretty cool to hear, he said, the purity of the game. But at the same time, you could hear every potty word used when somebody didn't execute a pitch or took a bad swing. After the game, many players said they could actually hear the play-by-play -play calls by the announcers during most of the game. And at one point, embracing the novelty of the situation, the TV announcers did their best impressions of golf announcers with a whispered call of an Adam Jones at bat. And while there was no kiss cam at the game, several of the rituals of baseball remained in place. The national anthem was still performed. The seventh inning stretch still took place. And in the fifth inning, when the PA announcer would customarily announce the official attendance for the game, James McMasters took the microphone and proclaimed that the official attendance for that game was zero. Until the past month or so, the story of the crowdless game only popped up in a small set of publications once a year on the anniversary of the event as sort of a piece of baseball trivia, a did-you-know of sorts. The answer to the question, what is the fewest number of fans who have ever attended a Major League Baseball game type of question. But now, after Major League Baseball has floated a tentative proposal to play an entire abbreviated season at a neutral site without fans, the story about that Orioles-White Sox game has taken on a new life and served as a potential reference point or benchmark what may be on the horizon. Never mind the fact that a more apt precedent existed long before April 2015. In the East Coast Athletic Conference in 1989, after all, a measles outbreak caused the entire conference tournament to be played without fans. But it is this game, the first and only game in Major League Baseball history to be played where the gates were closed to fans, that is making the rounds, if you will, in this sportsless media cycle. I really struggled with writing and recording this podcast. Part of me wanted to focus exclusively on the game itself, the game where it was so quiet that players in one dugout could hear players in the other strategizing, the game where there was nobody in the outfield bleachers to chase down home run balls, which instead clank their way through the empty stands echoing in the eerily silent stadium. That, of course, is an interesting story on its own. And that is the story that's going around right now in the media, as the Nippon Professional Baseball League has been experimenting with fanless exhibition baseball games in Japan. And it's looking more and more likely that if there is baseball in America in 2020, it will also be without fans. But why the game was played, with the games locked to the public, seems to have gotten lost in this media cycle. All that's told is a 
reductive one to two sentences about how violence in the streets of Baltimore required the partial closure of Camden Yards so that baseball could be played when law enforcement had more pressing tasks to address. But that's not the whole story. It's not even close. And while some people don't like mixing politics with sports, after all, the latter to most is viewed as the escape from the former, I realize that when you choose to say nothing, you are still making a political statement. And here, if one skips over the story of police brutality, the story of what happened to Freddie Gray on April 12, 2015, the tragic death of a 25-year-old African-American man that helped spark the grassroots movement in April 2015 referred to as the uprising, one is still making a political statement, a statement that it is okay to forget. And if one glosses over the demonstrations, the vigils, the marches, the peaceful demands for justice that took place between the death of Freddie Gray and the so-called crowdless game, one is implicitly adopting the cut-and-paste narrative featured in the flashback coverage in circulation today. That riots, led by thugs and looters, created a public safety crisis which required the Baltimore Orioles to close that game off to fans. A narrative that some have said is an all-too-convenient way of casting to the side and minimizing the other events in Baltimore 2015. A way for the rest of the country to repeat the all-too-common refrain that, hey, nobody likes police brutality, but violence as a response is never the answer. And then file away the other events in April and offer the same tired platitudes about healing and coming together while returning to the status quo. It seems that the story about what happened during the aftermath of Freddie Gray's death, from Saturday, April 25th, when confrontations outside the Orioles stadium caused the team to lock the fans in the stadium at the end of the game that night, through what has been widely described as a riot just a few days later, all of that is told without reference to what happened in the two weeks between those and before those events. And so as part of telling the story of the infamous crowdless game on April 29th, 2015, and the two canceled games that precipitated it, one has to go back more than two weeks earlier to a beautiful spring Sunday in Baltimore on April 12th, 2015. On Sunday, April 12th, 2015, in the inner harbor of Baltimore, the Orioles were playing host to the Toronto Blue Jays. More than 32,000 fans came to Camden Yards that day to watch the first weekend of baseball that season come to a close. The Blue Jays, who would eventually win the division, were tied for first place. The Orioles, who had finished first in the division the season before, were one game out. It was, for all intents and purposes, a beautiful afternoon for baseball. On that same day, on the other side of Baltimore, in the area known as Sandtown on the west side of the city, 25-year-old African-American man named Freddie Carlos Gray Jr. woke up in his girlfriend Jemiah Speller's two-bedroom brick row house. Speller dressed for her job as a personal nurse and left the house. Gray pulled on a Lacoste sweatshirt, dark jeans, and electric blue New Balance sneakers and headed to meet his two best friends on North Avenue. It was a beautiful Sunday morning in Baltimore, warm, but not hot, and Freddie had no place he needed to be. 
for many people in the Charm City. It was the type of Sunday where the season started to change and hope and possibility felt like they were around every corner. The baseball season had just started and the city of pleasant living seemed ready to live up to its nickname. For many people that morning, it was the type of day where the world was their oyster. But this was not the reality that Sunday morning for Freddie Gray or many other citizens of West Baltimore. That same morning near North Avenue, Lieutenant Brian W. Rice, Officer Edward Narrow, and Officer Garrett E. Miller were patrolling the streets on bicycles. According to police documents, after Freddie made eye contact with them, the police proceeded to attempt to engage with the young man, allegedly causing him to flee the scene on foot. But the police's pursuit of Gray was brief, and he was apprehended promptly. What happened as part of that apprehension was not initially a part of the police reports. A local bystander's video recording reveals that Freddie was dragged to a police van by officers, screaming along the way before propping himself into the back of a police van, then in police custody. And eyewitnesses soon shed more detail on the police's treatment of Gray. Several individuals who witnessed the incident stated that they saw the police officers fold Gray before the recording commenced. One officer bent Gray's legs backwards, and another held Gray down by pressing a knee into his neck. Other witnesses stated that Gray couldn't walk, couldn't use his legs, and that his legs looked broken. The Baltimore Sun reported that yet another eyewitness saw Gray being beaten with police batons. The 25-year-old was subsequently handcuffed, and his legs were shackled while being placed in the back of the police van. But it is widely believed that he was intentionally not restrained with a seatbelt while the van was subsequently in transit. And it is further believed that this was not an accident or omission, but intentional and a part of a common form of police brutality called a rough ride. Without a seatbelt, Freddie, just like others subjected to rough rides, couldn't protect himself when the van started, stopped, or turned abruptly, and would have no choice but to crash into the interior surfaces of the vehicle. And later, after this week in Baltimore, it was revealed that the police van in which Gray was being held took a tumultuous route that morning, making multiple stops on the way to the police department that Sunday morning. The van drove to four separate locations throughout West Baltimore, including to a grocery store and to North Fremont Avenue, where another suspect was detained. The van did not arrive at the West District Police Station until 9.24 a.m., or until 45 minutes after Freddie was first taken into custody. When the police arrived, Freddie was severely injured. Paramedics on site treated him for 21 minutes to no avail. Freddie was in a coma. He was subsequently transported to the University of Maryland R. Adams Cowley Shock Trauma Center at 9.45 a.m. Over the course of the week that ensued in Baltimore after Freddie's arrest, his condition never improved. Freddie suffered from total cardiopulmonary arrest. 
he was resuscitated, but he never fully regained consciousness. The 25-year-old remained in a coma and underwent several extensive surgeries, but Freddie was not recovering. He had three fractured vertebrae, injuries to his voice box, and his spine was 80% severed at his neck. And on April 19th, 2015, exactly one week after the arrest, with the Orioles tied for first place and playing the Red Sox in Boston, Freddie passed away. An autopsy report, which was obtained by the Baltimore Sun, found that Freddie likely received the injury when the van he was in suddenly decelerated. Dr. Carol Allen, an assistant medical examiner, later testified that Gray's fatal neck injuries, resembling those suffered in a driving accident, were caused by abrupt force to his neck during his transport, when he could not see outside the van to predict sudden stops, starts, or turns. Freddie Gray was just 25 years old. What happened in the immediate aftermath of the mistreatment of Freddie Gray is often overlooked when the story of the so-called crowdless game is told. Shortly after the video depicting Freddie's apprehension went viral, the public began to organize. On April 18, 2015, immediately outside the Western District Police Station, hundreds of Baltimore citizens protested against the apparent mistreatment of Freddie Gray. The protesters demanded information regarding police actions during the arrest and transport of Freddie, but were being stonewalled in response. And the next day, April 19, 2015, the day of Freddie's tragic death, organizers once again took to the streets and called for answers. The identities of the officers involved in the incident still hadn't been revealed, and the public grew suspicious that they were witnessing a cover-up. Two days later, on Tuesday, April 21, 2015, after two more days of peaceful protests in Baltimore, the police department finally released the names of the officers involved in Freddie's arrest. That night, protesters marched from the site of Freddie's arrest on North Avenue to the Western District Police Station. The demands for justice echoed through the streets of the monumental city for the fourth straight day of peaceful protests. And those demonstrations continued over the next few days, all without incident. In fact, on April 22, 2015, the Baltimore Fraternal Order of Police Lodge 3 said in a statement that although it disagreed with some of the protesters' rhetoric, it expressed and applauded the fact that to date, the protests had all been peaceful. And on April 23, 2015, after another day rife with activity, the Baltimore Police Department tweeted out that there had been just two arrests thus far in the demonstrations, remarking that the protests had been peaceful. But the public was still not getting the answers they desperately sought about what MSNBC was still calling as of Saturday, April 25th, the unexplained death of Freddie Gray. That afternoon, in anticipation of the city's biggest protest in the aftermath of Freddie's passing, the Baltimore Police Department finally capitulated and held a press conference where the department revealed for the very first time that the officers had not buckled Gray in in the back of the police van, something the police chief said there was no excuse for. 
what has unfortunately fallen out of many accounts of what happened between Freddy's untimely death and the events the following week are the myriad of peaceful, decentralized, and organic demonstrations that took place throughout the city. Little ink has been spilled about the late-night candlelight vigils in the streets, of, streets outside the Baltimore Police Department held in remembrance of the fallen West Baltimore native. And the Wikipedia articles skip over the stories about the hundreds of neighbors sitting on stoops in support of those who marched down their streets. And when the snapshots featured in recent sports articles that have revisited the crowdless game pop-up, they entirely fail to cover the way communities of faith came together and opened their doors to all citizens of Baltimore to help deal with fears, anxieties, and grief. And few articles cover the dozens of organic political organizations that sprung up throughout the Charm City in the days just after Freddie Gray's passing. And even less is included in the historical narrative about the creative people collaborating to express their frustration, sadness, and hope through public art and musical performances during the aftermath of Gray's untimely death. And few talk about the workshops that were conducted during which activists were educating young people about civil disobedience, their rights to protest, sunshine requests, how to post bond, and how to handle confrontations with law enforcement. Unfortunately, the public's multifaceted response is all too often reduced to a one-sentence summary in which protests took place and violence ensued without any reference to the peaceful marches, the sit-ins, the art, the vigils, the meetings in churches and other places of faith, and the legions of other manifestations of the demands for justice that cried out during those weeks in Baltimore after Freddie Gray's death. Most look back at the 25th, the day on which the police revealed that Freddie had not been secured in the back of the police van as the turning point in the demonstrations after Freddie Gray's untimely death. That, after all, was when, according to many accounts, the demonstrations became violent. While the truth had just begun to trickle out, the public's demands for justice remained unrequited. And so that day, on April 25, 2015, demonstrators organized the largest protest to date, the march started at City Hall and was scheduled to conclude in the Inner Harbor near Camden Yards, passing right through the very heart of the city. The turnout was extraordinary. With bodies pressed shoulder to shoulder, thousands of people filled the streets carrying signs that read, Justice for Freddie Gray and Black Lives Matter. The chants of, What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. Echoed throughout the entire city. The march largely took place without incident even though the protesters were enveloped by police at every turn and metal barricades were put up at various points along the march. As the march reached its ending point near the Orioles Stadium, tensions began to rise, orbiting around pockets of several protesters. Confrontations between baseball fans and local store owners on the one hand and protesters on the other emerged, and soon there were several, several altercations between protesters and denizens of the Inner Harbor. Before long, storefronts and car windows in or around the harbor were being smashed in, and almost immediately there was swift and forceful police intervention. As the BBC reported the next day, the police retaliated using force and pepper spray. 
J.M. Giordano, a photo photographer for the Baltimore City paper, was taking pictures of the protest when he was swarmed and beaten by two police officers in riot gear. Syed Gurbuz, a Reuters photographer with visible press credentials who photographed the scuffle from a public sidewalk, was tackled, handcuffed, and walked to the Western District Station. All in, at least 34 people were arrested that night. But that same day, baseball was being played at Camden Yards. Orioles manager Buck Showalter said after the game that his players were listening to what was going on from the clubhouse. These guys are aware of what's going on, he said. There are so many things that can take your attention away from a baseball game, and rightfully so. As important as we think this is, he said, there are some things that are more important. And as the unrest that night ended up being centered around Camden Yards, team officials had a difficult decision to make. Namely, whether and how to finish the baseball game that was being played that night. And against the backdrop of sirens in the surrounding streets, in the ninth inning, the PA addresser announced that the stadium was being locked down temporarily to prevent violence in the adjacent streets from spilling into it. And fans were told that they were not allowed to leave until the order outside had been restored. And thus, on April 25th, 2015, the Baltimore Orioles fans, for the first time in stadium history, were locked in to a game. After the Orioles beat the Red Sox that night in extra innings, a fan named Allie Howard exited the stadium. Howard reported, this is by far the most insane thing I've ever been through. After the game, Baltimore sports radio broadcaster Brett Hollander took to Twitter to argue that the demonstrations negatively impacted the daily lives of fellow citizens and were counterproductive and should be condemned. But Orioles COO John Angelos, the son of the team owner, responded, Brett, speaking only for myself, I agree with your point that the principle of peaceful, nonviolent protest and the observance of the rule of law is of the utmost importance in any society. That said, my particular source of personal concern, outrage, and sympathy beyond this particular case is focused neither upon one night's property damage nor upon the night's acts, but is focused rather upon the past four-decade period during which an American political elite have shipped middle-class and working-class jobs away from Baltimore, and then followed that action by diminishing civil rights protections in order to control an unfairly impoverished population living under an ever-declining standard of living and suffering at the butt-end of an ever-more militarized and aggressive surveillance state. The innocent working families of all backgrounds whose lives and dreams have been cut short by excessive violence, surveillance, and other abuses of the Bill of Rights by the government pay the true price and the ultimate price, and one that far exceeds the importance of any kids game played tonight or ever at Camden Yards. He concluded, we need to keep in mind that people are suffering and dying around the United States, and while we're thankful that no one was injured at Camden Yards, there is a far bigger picture for poor Americans in Baltimore and everywhere who don't have jobs and are losing economic and legal rights, and this makes inconvenience at a ball game irrelevant in light of the needless suffering government is inflicting upon ordinary Americans.
two days later, on Monday, April 27th, 2015, Freddie Gray's funeral was held at the New Shiloh Baptist Church at 11 a.m. Various civil rights leaders, families of other people killed by police, and several prominent Baltimore politicians, including the late Congress member Elijah Cummings, were all in attendance. Gray was ultimately laid to rest at Woodland Cemetery in Baltimore County, Maryland that afternoon. In the wake of that funeral, and with the demands that the police officers involved in Gray's death be held accountable still unfulfilled, tensions escalated as another day of protests were planned, this time with some agitators in the background allegedly calling for violence. Police reported that a flyer circulated on social media with reference to the popular movie The Purge, a film about one night of legalized crime, calling high school students to congregate after school and march from the Mandaman Mall to downtown and conduct a purge of their own. The police response was swift and blunt. They shut down the Mandaman Mall metro station, boarded up the buses, and created perimeters around several of the West Baltimore high schools. The roads around Frederick Douglass High School, as an example, were completely blockaded, leaving the students with nowhere to go. Police in full riot gear descended into the streets of West Baltimore. Shortly after school ended around 3 p.m. that afternoon, students poured into the streets, many as part of the organized event, but many there simply because they had nowhere else to go after the primary channels of transportation in West Baltimore had been obstructed. The situation was initially tense, but not violent. Eyewitnesses report that police began marching at small cliques of three to four kids in order to break them up. Those interactions soon became confrontations. Those confrontations soon became chaotic, and that chaos soon became violent. Around 3.30 p.m., the police officers reported that several juveniles had begun to throw bottles and bricks at officers. Several minutes later, the police department reported that one of its officers had been injured. And soon thereafter, what later became known as the uprising had begun. Hundreds of people resisted the demands of the police to stand down. Rocks, bottles, and bricks had been weaponized by protesters, while pepper spray, batons, and oversized riot shields were deployed in response. And just like that, the national media were showing pictures of chaos in the streets, of young African-American protesters throwing rocks at police, and even of buildings that had been lit on fire. Amidst these confrontations, several opportunistic looters arrived, smashing storefronts and stealing goods and products from local businesses. The CVS in West Baltimore was burned and trashed. But earlier in the night, on the other side of the city, there was a baseball game that needed to be played. The Chicago White Sox were scheduled to open up a game against the Baltimore Orioles. A few thousand people were already in the stands with just under an hour before first pitch when the violence on the other side of the city started to escalate. Fans continued to stream into the stadium, but just 40 minutes before game time, after consultation with local officials in Major League Baseball, the game was canceled. The PA announcer got on a loudspeaker and told the fans that due to public safety concerns, the game had been called off. And at the end of a long night of conflict, it was reported that there were two police cars destroyed, 144 different vehicle fires, 15 structural fires, and nearly 200 arrests. But there were some who wondered if some or all of this 
was preventable. Jenna McLaughlin and Sam Brody, in an article entitled, The Baltimore Riots Didn't Start the Way You Think, capture the accounts of Baltimore teachers and parents in which those witnesses posit that the situation on the West Side was tense but stable. Those teachers and parents argue that the police doused fuel into the flames by corralling young folks into a few square blocks, cutting off exit options, shutting down the subway and the buses, all of which had the cumulative effect of preventing the after-school crowd from dispersing and then antagonizing the Baltimore youth. In an interview with Gawker, Meg Gibson, a Baltimore teacher, stated, the riot police were already at the bus stop on the other side of the mall, turning buses that transport those students away, not allowing students to board. They were waiting for those kids. Those kids were set up. They were treated like criminals before the first brick was thrown. But before any semblance of a dialogue on the national stage could take place about what took place that night, the national media had descended into Baltimore and covered it as a city on fire, depicting images of young African-American men climbing on top of cars and smashing storefronts. And those image, images were circulating throughout the national press's highlight reels before morning. The night was conveyed to the national audience as a violent riot filled with thugs and looters. By the next morning, the national news story of a city on fire had taken center stage in defining the aftermath of Freddie Gray's death. The peaceful protests, the candlelight vigils, and the nonviolent marches had become distant memories in light of what was being covered as a self-destructive riot from the night before. Television coverage that morning on April 28, 2015 showed local firefighters still putting out fires from the night before. Reports circulated soon thereafter that the Maryland National Guard would be promptly arriving in Baltimore in order to provide additional support for the local police. But despite the national picture of a city in chaos in need of order and restructuring, it actually was ordinary residents of West Baltimore that were in the streets that morning sweeping debris, picking up glass, and putting the pieces back together. Literally thousands of people from Baltimore gathered to assist. Local West Baltimore hardware stores in the neighborhood donated trash bags and brooms to help the grassroots effort at cleaning up the wreckage from the night before. Professor Elizabeth Kennedy stated, thousands of people came out of their homes on Tuesday morning to clean, to green, to feed. They crossed boundaries and danced together, sang together, prayed together, protest together. Rather than wait for some official call to action, Baltimore just did it. But rumors were spreading that additional actions were planned that afternoon in an area of Baltimore known as Security Square Mall. The police responded by shutting it down, along with the nearby Social Security Administration and Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services buildings as well. And the media was there, ready to cover another night of riots. In one clip that soon went viral from that day, activist Kwame Rose confronted Geraldo Rivera saying, I want you and Fox News to get out of Baltimore City because you are not here reporting about the boarded up homes and the homeless people under MLK. You're not reporting about the poverty levels up and down North Avenue, but you're here for the black riots that happen. You're not here for the death of Freddie Gray. Protests continued that day, all of which were peaceful. But on the back of the previous night's events, 
law enforcement imposed a 10 p.m. curfew in the city of Baltimore. And just like that, protesting, at least in certain parts of the city and at certain times, had become a crime. And with that, the city took on the look and the feel of a militarized zone. Patrol cars were rolling through the streets, announcing over their loudspeakers that there was a mandatory curfew in effect. Helicopters were buzzing throughout the city. Tanks were literally stationed on street corners. And riot police were lined up in certain high-traffic areas of the city. Midday that Tuesday, Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred announced that after conversations with the Orioles and local officials, we believe that the decision to cancel today's game is in the best interest of fan safety and the deployment of city resources. With Governor Larry Hogan deploying the National Guard and neighboring states sending in reinforcements, it was concluded that Baltimore police officers had more pressing things to do than protect 20,000 fans at Camden Yards. And just like that, two games had been canceled on back-to-back -back evenings. The record books mark them with the curious description, postpone due to civil unrest, something that has only happened on two other occasions in Major League Baseball history. The night ended as one would expect after protesting had been effectively criminalized, after organizers gathered outside the CVS that had been looted the night before and did so peacefully, the clock struck 10, and organizing was now illegal. Police in riot gear began to move the crowds with speakers from helicopters overheard broadcasting, you must go home, you cannot remain here, you will be subject to arrest. Some protesters responded and began to throw objects at the oncoming police. Shortly after 10.30 p.m., police equipped with riot shields began to slowly advance on the gathering, with some people beginning to disperse. At 10.32 p.m., Baltimore police tweeted that officers are now deploying pepper balls at the aggressive crowd. Police began moving into the crowds, dispersing down side street ways away from the area. And at 10.50 p.m., military vehicles were seen driving through the streets to disperse the remaining crowd, numbered with just a few dozen people. There isn't a coherent narrative, though, as to what happened with respect to the game the next day on Wednesday the 29th. Two games had been canceled on back-to-back -back evenings, so most suspected that the third and final game of the series would be canceled as well. But there aren't many, if any, reports about how, why, or when the decision was made. But on Tuesday the 28th, it was announced that the Orioles game with the White Sox the next day, Wednesday the 29th, would go forward, but just at a different time and without fans something that had never happened in baseball history. It wasn't clear whether it was because of scheduling constraints, a concern that the Orioles would be forced to play too many double headers later that season, or just a desire to start to get things back on track. But the game that we described earlier proceeded without any fans in attendance. The game was rescheduled so that it would start at 2 p.m. in an effort to ensure that the game would not conflict with local curfew laws. Sirens could be heard during the telecast that afternoon, and helicopters could be seen flying overhead. The game was over in near record time, clocking in at just two hours and three minutes. To some, like Kevin Cowherd, the game was a brief return to normalcy and a reminder that there was hope for the city that seemed irretrievably broken. Former Congress member and former president of the NAACP, 
Kwaizi Mafume, who stood right outside the left field fence to catch the sounds and glimpses of the game, agreed. What I sense, he said, is that there was an effort here to give people for two or three hours a sense of normalcy during a very disruptive situation. Others thought fans should have been there that day as part of the rebuilding process. City Council President Bernard C. Jack Young and Councilmember Nick Mosby, who represented the areas hit the hardest during the unrest, felt that the game should have been played with fans so that they could show the world that the city was on the rise again. To others, like Kwame Opam writing for The Verge, it was a game for no one that symbolized what was wrong with America. Opam wrote, men were being paid millions to hit a ball around a field, locked in a fortress, away from a calmed yet tense city, still gripped by abiding desperation. But who was this game for, she wrote. Certainly not for the fans, they were locked out of it. It wasn't for the Baltimore just outside Camden Yards, which was currently occupied by soldiers. And it wasn't for Freddie Gray, or any of the black or brown men and women brutalized by police because they couldn't watch. And still others, like Alfonso Piazza, saw it as a distraction that took away from what was going on in Baltimore, tweeting, media doesn't want to talk about the problem, they only want to focus on the crowdless game. An apt observation for these times, when the story of Freddie Gray has become just a footnote in discussions about fanless sports in the age of COVID-19. And there were those who saw it as a sign that Baltimore had capitulated to protesters. Brandon Herson, a fan who tried to watch the game through the left field gates, called it a surrender to fear. And other fans went even further, mocking the protesters at the first Orioles home game after the crowdless game, holding up signs that said, birds lives matter and no Orioles, no peace. And to Saturday Night Live, it was a subject to spoof just four days later when Scarlett Johansson played an on-field reporter at the crowdless game. Two armed guards were featured on the fake kiss cam and Saturday Night Live showed a hot dog vendor selling dogs to nobody. The one account that can't be disputed was in the book When the Crowd Didn't Roar. In that book, Kevin Cowherd wrote, if, as has been suggested, the business of sports is to get us to share uniquely emotional experiences, this game surely qualifies for all those who witness the game. Later that week, in yet another example of scheduling acrobatics, Major League Baseball announced that the Orioles' upcoming homestand against the Tampa Bay Devil Rays would be played instead on the road in Florida. The Orioles would still wear home whites and bat in the bottom of each inning, and they would keep the gate receipts. And thus, when the week was over, the Orioles had played one game in which the fans had been locked in, one game in which the fans had been locked out, two games had been canceled, and three home games were actually played on the road. While the crowdless game in Baltimore took place without incident, the tense situation in the quasi-militarized streets of the city had not come to an end. Protesters were still organized and demonstrating, joining in a chorus of demands that the police officers involved in Gray's death be held to account. And the demonstrations remained nonviolent. But the city remained under tight scrutiny by law enforcement with strictly enforced curfew laws. Protesting at certain hours was now illegal. And so unsurprisingly, on April 29th, after the game, nearly two dozen protesters were arrested, even though the demonstrations were peaceful. And two days later, the story was the same mainly peaceful protests, followed by nearly 40 arrests 
for curfew violations. And on Saturday, May 2nd, 2015, after the largest peaceful rally in the aftermath of the death of Freddie Gray, 46 more people were arrested that night for violating curfew. But a corner was turned when on May 1st, 2015, after receiving a medical examiner's report ruling Gray's death a homicide, state prosecutors said that they had probable cause to file criminal charges against the six officers involved in Freddie Gray's arrest and transport. Baltimore City State's attorney, Marilyn Mosby, said that the Baltimore police had acted illegally and that no crime had been committed by Freddie Gray. All six officers were taken into custody and processed at Baltimore Central Booking and Intake Center. The HBO documentary Baltimore Rising described the city as being in a state of jubilation. Organizers wept, activists danced. By virtually all accounts, the protests as part of the uprising started to dissipate after that weekend. The curfew was lifted on May 3rd, and the Maryland National Guard withdrew completely from Baltimore the next day on May 4th. The legacy of those three weeks in Baltimore has been and will be debated for generations to come. Even though three of the officers were ultimately acquitted, leading to the dropping of charges against the remaining three, some view the public's reaction in the wake of Freddie Gray's death as an important step in a longer journey toward bringing awareness to and ultimately ending police brutality. Some, however, view the three-week period as just another example of the public trying to change the systems of oppression and brutality in this country, but with no real or lasting changes. And due to the media's sensationalized depiction of Baltimore, many will just remember it as the time thugs and looters rioted in the streets of Baltimore and lit the city on fire. Still, others will remember the peaceful marches, the workshops conducted by and for young people about civil disobedience, the street medics who tended to fellow protesters after being pepper sprayed by police, the candlelight vigils held for Freddie, and the thousands of people who came together to help clean up the city after a night of destruction. In many ways, that three-week period in the aftermath of Freddie Gray's death is a Rorschach test, where individuals see the parts of Baltimore that they want to see. As Professor Elizabeth Kennedy from Loyola University of Maryland wrote, Many who live in and love our city declared after citizens organized to clean up the city on the morning of Tuesday the 28th that this is the Baltimore I know, or this is the real Baltimore in contrast to Monday night, which supposedly was not the Baltimore they knew and therefore not the real Baltimore. But to declare that the anger, the frustration, and the rage of young people in neighborhoods like Sandtown is not Baltimore is to once again deny, turn away from, and discount the lives and lived experiences of so many who also call Baltimore home. Maybe living in Baltimore has never meant wanting to throw a rock at a police officer or smash a store window. Maybe you've never felt crushed by living in a neighborhood where more fathers, sons, and brothers than any other in a wealthy state are sent to prison. Maybe you could never imagine destroying your own block because yours is a neighborhood of choice, not one you feel you must burn down in order to escape but that doesn't make it not Baltimore. And if that is not your experience in Baltimore, as it is certainly not mine, our response cannot solely be to create more of what you love about Baltimore. If you did not recognize the anger and rage expressed in the streets of our city Monday night, ask yourself why, and then how. 
how to better know the city we love and all the parts of it. Because we cannot simply cut and paste the parts of Baltimore we like and call the final edited version the real Baltimore. I wanted to find a way to end the story surrounding these canceled games with a theme or a lesson that might relate in some way to the challenges we're facing now in this moment. Maybe the story of the crowdless game is a lesson or a reminder that no matter how much we love baseball, no matter how much we wish it could bring us together, some moments, like the one we're living in now, may just be too big for the game. But in conducting research on the story of Freddie Gray, his death and the aftermath in Baltimore, I realized that there is one component of the story that is consistently overlooked, and that is the story of who Freddie Gray the person was. And in an age where human lives have been reduced to numbers on a death count in a side panel on CNN, perhaps retelling his story will be a reminder that we should never let the faces become footnotes. On August 19, 1989, in Baltimore, a 25-year-old named Gloria Darden gave birth to twins, Frederica and Freddie. Freddie was named after his father, who was no longer in the picture, and Frederica was nicknamed Missy. Freddie and Missy had an older sister, Carolina, and the family of four lived together in poverty, moving frequently from place to place in the west side of Baltimore. Freddie's childhood was a far cry from easy. His mother battled drug abuse for most of his youth, and he struggled with school, later being diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. It was later discovered that Freddie spent a significant amount of his upbringing living in a house with dangerous amounts of lead paint on the walls. Freddie's family described him as a very loving, caring, and respectful young man who always had a smile on his face. At age 11, he was an usher and a choir member at the Mount Royal Missionary Baptist Church. Freddie also had a reputation as a jokester, some referring to him as the little comedian he was a fiery little kid and always funny, his youth football coach Lawrence Jackson later stated. I remember telling Freddie to be quiet and quit the jokes while turning my head around so the other kids couldn't see me laughing. Freddie dropped out of high school before graduating. And with few options in his life, Freddie turned to low-level drug dealing as a source of income, a career decision that was not uncommon for many young men in West Baltimore. But a hardened criminal, he was not. And at five foot eight and 145 pounds, Freddie wasn't exactly an intimidating presence either. Pepper, as his friends called him, was regarded as a jokester who could lighten up a serious moment at the drop of a hat. Freddie would give the clothes off his back to someone in need, a girlfriend later said. He didn't care who you were. Freddie had multiple run-ins with the law relating to drugs, but by his mid-twenties, it started taking steps to break away from his life working on Baltimore's drug corners. Part of that motivation for the change in his life was Freddie's girlfriend, Jemiah Speller, a nurse in Baltimore. The two started dating in 2011 and soon moved in together in Speller's apartment. Gray became a father figure to Jemiah's seven-year-old daughter, Paige, taking her to school and spoiling her with gifts. One time he drove to a Walmart at midnight to get her a Wii game that she desperately wanted. 
Jemiah said she would never forget when Freddie surprised her with that game, recalling Paige jumping into Freddie's arms and showering him with kisses of gratitude. Freddie was always talking about wanting to have a baby, according to Speller. I said, you have to get yourself, yourself together before we do that. And boy, was he trying, she said. But changing his livelihood was easier said than done. Gray's criminal lawyer, Creston Smith, recalled after his death. It's not easy for people who have a better life, those born on third base, to understand Gray or why he kept returning to the corner. Gray was sent up to the plate with two outs and a broken bat, and someone says, Freddie, get in there. We need you to score a run, okay? Twice during 2014, Gray had gone to the job center at Mondaman Mall in order to try to find a job so he could get off the Baltimore street corners. And in late 2014, Gray told a reverend with whom he was performing court-ordered community service, I'm trying to do right. I don't want to go back there on the streets. I'm trying, but I cannot get a job. I have a record. But Freddie was undoubtedly trying to turn things around. And on April 12, 2015, just under three weeks before the so-called crowdless game between the Orioles and the White Sox, Freddie and his girlfriend Jemiah awoke in her West Baltimore residence. The two started their day early. They talked. They joked as if it were any other day. Speller dressed for work, and Freddie pulled on a Lacoste sweatshirt, dark jeans, and electric blue New Balance sneakers, and left to meet his two best friends on North Avenue. It was a beautiful Sunday morning in West Baltimore, and Gray had no place he needed to be. For many people in the Charm City, it would have been the type of day where the world was their oyster. For many people in the Charm City, it was the type of Sunday where the season started to change and hope and possibility felt like they were around every corner. The baseball season had just started, and the city of pleasant living seemed ready to live up to its nickname.